Hey, Kate, this is a conversation you had with Carrie Arsenal back in mid-September 2020 during the pandemic about her new book, Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains. And as I remember, it took a culinary turn, which was pretty exciting. I think once we both discovered that we love food, there was no coming back. It's the most fun thing to talk about. And, but we did talk about her book, as I remember also. Yeah, it was a great conversation that sort of jumped around. Um, and I don't want to ruin it for listeners, but there's, uh, there's a lot of Franco-American culture in there, Milltown culture, um, all sort of mixed together. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. Thanks. Hopefully our listeners will too. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, my name is Rachel Harkness. I'm the programming manager at the Portland Public Library. And today we are delighted to be hosting Carrie Arsenal and Kate Christensen at the Literary Lunch. They are here to discuss Carrie's new book, Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains. Carrie Arsenal is a book critic and book editor at Orion Magazine and a contributing editor at the Literary Hub. She is also a mentor for PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program and her work has appeared in Freeman's, The Boston Globe, Down East, The Paris Review Daily, The New York Review of Books, and Airmail. Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains is her first book. And Kate Christensen will be uh, interviewing Carrie. Uh, she's the author of seven novels, including The Great Man, which won the 2008 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, and The Last Cruise, published in 2019. She's also published two food-centric memoirs, Blue Plate Special and How to Cook a Moose, which won the 2016 Maine Literary Award for mentor, uh, memoir, sorry. And uh, thank you so much to Carrie and Kate for being here. I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Rachel. Um, it's so nice to be here at the library. Um, I've been really excited to talk to you, Carrie, because last time I talked to you, we've never met in real life. Right. We've only met on Zoom and an email. <clears throat> and last time, last time was your launch event at print two weeks ago. Um, but we got to talk about so much during, during that. We got to talk about why and how you wrote your book. And we got to talk about the themes in your book. And I got to extol its literary greatness, which I would be happy to do anytime. All of you must read this book. It's fantastic. Um, but we didn't get to talk about so much else. And I, I just sort of thought, oh, good, we have this other opportunity oh. to have a conversation. And, um, and since we've been emailing, um, along the way. Um, so I just want to sort of pick up where we've, where we've been, you know, sort of sharing our passion, which is for food. Yes. And, and food writing and um, Maine. And um, one of the things I'm really excited to talk about also is your Acadian heritage, because I, um, as a new Mainer, when I had been here for two minutes, I had the audacity and arrogance to write a book about food in Maine. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, and I was in this sort of honeymoon rosy glow when I wrote How to Cook a Moose because I had I'd been a New Yorker for 20 years and I moved up here and was gobsmacked by Maine, just, just by what I found here, a sense of sort of, first of all, belonging that I've never felt anywhere else. And, you know, that, that too is audacity because I'm from yeah. Maine. But, but also a, a passion for the food here. And um, I've always felt this twin kind of fascination with 
lumber camps and the food that they cooked in lumber camps, um, which is famously prodigious and lavish and um, <laughs> high calorie. Also statement, yeah. <laughs> and also with the Acadians. And you write a lot in Milltown about being an Acadian and what that means and sort of and sort of tracing your roots. In fact, that's the, how, how the book began was you asking sort of what it, what does it mean that I'm an Acadian? What does it mean that I'm a Franco-American? And um, what 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 actually is that in terms of an identity and a culture? And so um, the genesis of this book was was rooted in Acadia, right? It really was. It was it literally when my I think did I say this to you? But when I I found my grandfather's obituary. Did I tell you about that? It was like this. Yeah, yeah that's it, so I should tell everybody else that's yeah. already okay. Very briefly, I found my grandfather's obituary. Who was born in Prince Edward Island? Who was Acadian? And it told me things I didn't know about him. And I started to explore some of those things, basically. And out of it came a book. And it became this book. <laughs> a book, a book. I ended up somewhere totally else, but it's okay. <laughs> well, it's a book about it's about growing up in in Rumford, um, and it, which is a mill town, which is why it's called Milltown, I imagine. But it's but it's it's interesting because it's it's so loving and full of just incredible tenderness and understanding and compassion for the workers in this mill, many of whom are your relatives, all of whom are sort of the people you grew up amongst, and also an expose of what the mill is doing to these people. Mm -hmm. And it's a sort of twining of, you know, um, ecological and social, and uh, really interesting, and family, deeply yeah. family. But um, I, I was leading up to a request, which is that um, there's there's a part in your book, and this this is my my uh, lumber camp um, <laughs> passion. <laughs> but you you write about your great grandfather, who to my absolute excitement was a cookie, which is what they called the cooks in the lumber camps. I should say, I had no idea that Kate was obsessed with cookies. I knew she liked cooking, but and cookies is spelled not like cookie monster it's spelled with two e's at the end a cookie can but i did in fact write about this and i am more than happy to read this to you and i think everybody here it is lunch i hope you're eating and if you're not you're going to be hungry after this perhaps or or full i'm not sure which <laughs> so just so you know this is um here, let me get this in this big microphone maybe i'll put it over here um <coughs> This is my great-grandfather on my mother's side. Um, I, guess I think I can just start here. It's called Blind Spots section. In a sepia photograph, my maternal great-grandfather, Pierre Godin, sits on a giant stump in front of a logging camp, arms crossed, a thicket of wavy hair, a long-handled axe buried in the woodpile next to him. Pierre worked as a logging camp cook, a cookie, in northern Maine when he was young, where he fed lumberjacks who toiled in the woods 10 hours a day severing tree trunks with toothy two-man cross-cut saws. The drafty cabin, cabins where Pierre worked were fueled by wood stoves that warmed their bodies and dried their socks. In more primitive camps, a hollowed out log served as a sink or bench and pine needles a crunchy, crunchy fragrant mattress. Men slept in splintery hewn bunks stacked around a stink pole where they strung their half-washed clothes like steamy sour ornaments. In wintertime, they'd harness down trees to oxen 
and slide them across packed snow to ease the wood's weight. By, by spring, mud slowed the movement of the harvests, but lakes and rivers swelled into liquid highways, which lumberjacks used to raft the flotilla of trees toward Maine's coastal ports to be sold and sent throughout New England and the world. Every day, Pierre rose at 3 a.m. and made Paul Bunyan-sized breakfasts for his hungry mob, biscuits, codfish, donuts, partridge, tea, potatoes, rice, molasses, coffee, macaroni, pickled beef, cookies, bacon, cakes, and the great trinity of beans, pork, and bread. Logging camps without good cooks shuddered and inferior cooks were ousted by grumbling crowds of muscle-fisted men. A cookie's task boost boosted not only productivity, but morale. As soon as the men bolted down their breakfast, Pierre assembled an equally massive sack lunch. After the lumberjacks left for the day's work, he began preparing their next meal to keep up with their 9,000 calorie a day intake. <laughs> In an endless circle of cooking and cleaning, his job was as vital to the paper industry as the pines the lumberjacks felled. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you. I could listen to that all day. I, I wish the list, the, I, I wanted the list to be even longer. <laughs> I think it is. I sent you an article about it. And yeah. there's so much food they ate. I oh, wish I could that much. And five times a day or something they ate. Just make a dream come true. Uh, if I could eat five times a day, like just 9,000 calories. <laughs> I guess if I were cutting trees down, I probably would. But. <laughs> Um, yeah, I feel like it would be worth doing all that physical labor just to be able to eat that much, right. you know? Um, so, so you're a cook. I am a cook. I love to cook. Um, and I think I'm a pretty good cook. I, I like to feed, I, I like my great grandfather, like to feed crowds of hungry people. And I actually, I, it wasn't until writing this book that I even made that connection of, you know, I, I didn't know him. I he was more mythology than person. And I did remember my great grandmother. I was three, I think, when she died. But he lived with my grandmother and my mother. They all three generations in the same house. And it was like that, that whole idea of like eating and feeding people. It was more like feeding people than eating. You know what I mean? And that, my grandmother did that and my mother did that. I mean, our house after school was the place kids came to just eat and my mother loved it and my father too to a degree when he was not working but um I think I never realized that I got that from them until writing this book you know just that idea we don't cook the same I don't think maybe there, maybe there's a few things like my father's shortbread recipe um my mother's um spaghetti and meatballs weirdly not French Canadian neither of them <laughs> but um but yeah just feeding people and just having that companionship and around the table and lots of yelling often like not fighting but just a loud group of <laughs> boisterous women mostly <laughs> i did a, i did an event with ben fountain the other day and he's read he was reading passages of my book he's like carrie there's a lot of like really strong loud women in your family <laughs> he got that from the book i mean there was no shouting but anyway yeah we sit around yeah. the table and just like eating so what are some of the other things that you ate when you were little that that um like is there an yeah. Acadian like 
I know all about um, the Cajuns in Louisiana, and they made, you know, all this food really famous, and the whole Cajun cuisine is a thing, and um, there's not a corresponding Acadian, um, you know, it's, um, I feel like the Acadians are more mysterious than the Cajuns. Well, more mysterious and because nobody really knows their story a little right. bit. You know? Until you wrote it. And until, until there's I very little. <laughs> there is very little. Um, yeah. And the food itself is very, I think, I mean, from what I know, so I, I can tell you what we grew up eating. I mean, we, there's a French name for it, tortier. Yeah. But it's, we called it meat pie. Like, oh. <laughs> I mean, you know, the language, the French language sort of got slivered <laughs> off over the years. And it's just like oh. meat pie. The um, French language got ripped away from you. You were forbidden to speak it for yeah. Like my grandmother was nineteen. She was born nineteen eighteen, and that was the year that Maine forbade it in the schools. It was and, illegal. Yeah, it was illegal. And then, um, you know, over the years, of course, she stopped speaking it. And my great grandmother had died, so then my mother, you know, didn't really speak it. We just learned it in in school. It was really the language you learned. And we'd go once a year to Quebec or Montreal with a school trip. And try to use our French, but but anyway, the tortier was meat pie, and it's it's funny. Meat pie is like it's kind of like the French, the Acadian spaghetti and meatballs. Like everybody has their way of doing it. You know what I mean? Um, my mother's way, and I would tell you the basic recipe is basically my way, except for so it's it's ground beef with um, instant potatoes which I know, I don't use them. That bell seasoning, is that what it is? Yeah, that bell seasoning, which had, I don't know, what does it have in it? Like marjoram and mace, all kinds of weird things that like you don't often use in some recipes. I don't know what's in there, um, but we just get the bells and um, onions. No, did she even use? Yeah, she did use onions, but I hated them as a kid. So she'd have to mash them up really <laughs> I didn't know they were in there. Like if I found anything that like bit of an onion, I would be, I would like spit it out on my plate. So, <laughs> and um, yeah, so you cook the onions, put in the, put in the beef, then put in the mashed potato, the instant potatoes, because then it would give it this thickness and then the seasoning, salt and pepper, put it in a pie crust, put the top of the pie crust, bake it. And it was really a thing we often only had um, on Christmas morning was um, the thing. And my sister, if she's here at all, I don't know if she is, um, still does that. And I, I think I just pulled one, they freeze really well. And I just pulled one out a few weeks ago. My husband, I had made one and I was like, oh my God, there's a meat pie. And it's so great. You just pull it. So like one slice is like eating a softball, you know, it's like so filling. <laughs> but we also, I have to say, there's like a lot of um, bad things we did to it too, which was, um, I, I really like it with ketchup. Yum. Why is that bad? I don't know. Is it? I, I mean, I'll eat ketchup on anything. I would eat this coffee mug. I would eat cardboard with ketchup on it. I put it on everything, including eggs, and you can shoot me for that. Yes. But it's so no. good on eggs. So um, good on eggs. So what is your meat pie recipe? How is it different from your, your mother's? So, you know, I use real potatoes, but it's kind of a drag. And so my husband in making some, he bought some instant potatoes, but now you can sort of get like organic, non-GMO. <laughs> we think we're doing better, but we have some up in the cupboard and it helps because it's, it's just instant. It adds like that instant kind of density to the mass. Yeah. Um, but I have used real potatoes and I like the little bits of potatoes in there. It's like eating a little bit of home fry in there with the onion. And yeah. um, 
So um, do you like onions now? I, I don't think there's anything I make that doesn't have onions in it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Although over the years, every I I have become more and more susceptible to the tears of them. Like I, I was just touching onion, I'll be like, ah, so I it's what I have a husband for. You know, I I wear contact lenses and I find that I don't cry when I chop onions. Huh. And I forgot that people cry when they chop onions because it's been so many years. Um, well, wow. Maybe I should get contacts. Get contacts. Um, also, my husband says that if you put, if you get your something wet on your face, I can't remember. I'll ask him. I'll email. It sounds like something my great grandmother would say. You'd be like, you got a bloody nose. She'd say, stick a tissue up over your upper lip. And I'm like, tilt your head back. And it'll, yeah. yeah. Um, she used to make us stick tissues up here. And I'm like, <laughs> Why did we get so many bloody noses as kids anyway? Probably because you lived in Rumford. Oh, right. But my, you know, yeah. my sister got them all the time. I think some kids just get bloody noses. They're like the bloody nose kids. I've never had one in my life. Yeah. They freak me out. Like, what, <laughs> why does your nose bleed? Why? What causes them? Um, but anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. It, well, um, kind of. Question. <laughs> but the meat pie, yeah. I mean, I make them basically the same. And uh -huh. I try to make my own crust. But again, those, um, what are those, Pillsbury in the red box? Those, uh -huh. things are, those things are pretty great. I mean, if you're in a hurry and you want to make a bunch of them, like my mother does at Christmas, you know, she just lines them up and fills them. And she hands them out like Christmas cards, you know. Like, here's a meat pie? Yeah. Christmas? If wow. you show up at her house, you'll get a meat pie. Yeah. You'll go I'm home with one. Give me your address. <laughs> so, <laughs> I will. Let me see if she's on here. Are I've never had a tortiere um, in all the oh. years. Now I've lived here almost 10 years, and I still have yet to eat a tortiere. So basically, it's a shepherd's pie and a pie crust. With no vegetables. <laughs> With no vegetables, except onion. Just onion, but it's like they disappear. There's a different kind of meat pie, too. I can't remember what my grandmother called it. It was, um, she would fry the pork. It was like pork yeah and it wasn't anything it wasn't like pork belly or anything it was kind of just like pork roast and a little bit of onion but she would make this little gravy this light gravy and then put that in a pie crust and i never i never ate that till i was older because i didn't like big chunks of meat it just freaked me out chewing them but yeah. i mean i eat everything now but yeah. but that was the other meat pie i think she might even put a little nutmeg in there too so was that acadian or was that just her no, that was Acadian too. Um, what else did they make? Okay, well, so there's... what about ploys? Oh, you know, I make those now. And my mother kind of did too, but buck they're made with buckwheat generally, supposedly. Basically like a flat, like a crepe, like a flat crepe. And you can eat them with everything. Um, we had them a couple times, but it wasn't a big deal. But now I love them. I love buckwheat. And I just got this I do too. I just ordered like a 12 pound bag of buckwheat flour. Oh, so I'm going to from the internets. <laughs> I know, but is it coming from like. It's actually I mean, from France. <laughs> it's actually, so you're going all the way to the mother country. To I was going to the mother country to get my buckwheat, yes. <laughs> but I didn't know. It was one of those things, you know, when you're shopping online and you think, oh, I'm just going to get a pound of flour. And it was like, came. And I was like, what the hell? It's like <laughs> as big as a laser printer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring you some. At Hannaford. And oh. it's, it's Bouchard um, Family Farms Acadian Buckwheat Flour. Yeah. 
somebody told me that it's super refined and it's not at all sort of authentic buckwheat flour. I mean, it's, it's, I, I can't eat gluten. And so I'll neither use anything. You don't need it either. I don't need it. That's why I'll bring you some. I have 12 pounds of it. I'll bring you half of it. <laughs> yes, please. Okay. Yeah. It's not, um, it's not refined. That's why I got, that's why I kind of searched around to try to find some. So, so in your, in your research, um, for your book, um, when you, I feel like you learned a tremendous amount about, about being an, what, 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 who the Acadians are, where they came from, why they're here, which is a whole yeah. other story. Um, and I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that, um, just in terms of, of your book and how, and how relevant it is. In fact, how alive that history is in Rumford right now. Yeah. Um, I didn't learn, I grew up in Rumford in Mexico, in case anybody just got here. And most of our town was either Franco-American or Acadian um, heritage. I mean, most, it felt like it. I mean, there were other people too, but there was a lot. Um, and oddly enough, we didn't learn anything about our heritage, you know, at all. We just learned the basic stuff you learn about like the Mayflower and stuff like that, even though I, find, I found out later the Acadians were in North America way before, not way before, but years before the Mayflower and those people down in Jamestown. Um, so part of, you know, uh, our ancestors, I was looking really at not just Rumford in Mexico, but as a, a, a bigger landscape and how landscapes form us, you know, how, how I think they're the foundation of our lives, whether we like it or not. And, and part of that landscape is coming from where we come from, not just the home, but I really, DNA, you know, our DNA creates us literally. So how can I not look at, you know, what, what was in my past? You know, it's, it's the foundation upon which we build our lives. And, uh, and not knowing that history, I thought, well, if I'm going to write this book and think about my family, I really have to go look at that. Cause I really knew nothing. I just knew little like glimpses. It was like opening a curtain and shutting it. I was like, that's as much as I knew. So um, in, Basically, I, I went, I started digging into genealogy in 2001, and that same year I went to Prince Edward Island. My father and I took a drive up um, by ourselves without my mother along. It was the first time we'd ever done a trip, first and last time we'd ever done a trip without her. You know, she kind of runs the show, which is fine. Um, but we wanted to find out where his father had come from because his obituary, come to find out, was we couldn't find the, it on the map, this place where he was born. So we drove up there. What's the obituary you were talking about earlier though yes that's the obituary it was missing information right. or wrong information so my book started with like wrong information right. which basically the entire book is an investigation about wrong information really yeah, yeah. Um, it was just one of those pieces you know and then we you know i went to prince edward island and um i didn't find all the answers i was looking for about that sort of foundation that ancestral foundation so my husband and i went to france in 2006 maybe um and followed the loire valley all the way down to the coast so i just kept going back and back as far as i could go um to see where they came from and like you said why they came both to canada and to maine and it was a lot of surprises along the way um one thing i was just talking last night about it and it, I guess it occurred to me while I was writing the book, but I have such a terrible memory, is that we followed the Loire, the Loire River because a lot of 
the, my family had been working on those rivers in the riverine system, building, you know, um, helping sort of move the water around where they wanted to go. I can't think of the word. I don't know what the word is. Um, and then, so they did that. And then they came over to Prince Edward Island and did the same, you know, they were taming the sea really with their hands, the, the tides and, and that tide up there is the, like the, brings in the most water. Some, I can't even remember what it said in the book, some astronomical amount of water, the tide goes in and out. And then you come, they, when they came to Rumford in Mexico, still they're on a river, you know, it's like all these water things that were, you know, I, I can't believe that. And here I am writing about it. And here's my, and here's my book cover for anybody who hasn't seen it. It's the actual river upon which my town is based. The Androscoggin River. So rivers were very um, important to my family. And it, and it was the structure and ended up being the structure of my book. Because that river, you know, just following it from the beginning, which is France, as far back as I get to the end, which is like my town, just seemed to make sense. Um, but I don't know. The other thing about, I mean, the, I think the biggest part of the history that people don't know about about the Acadians is how they were ethnically cleansed from their land in 1755. Um, you know, put on ships and their houses burned and people killed and families split, you know, they were just purposefully cruel, splitting the men and women and the elders and their children and, and send them all up and down the East Coast to France to hither and yon. They didn't go directly to Louisiana, um, which is something people think, but um, that was a, that's something I just sort of knew a little bit about, but not really how, how really terrible it was. And then, you know, so much so that Acadia doesn't even exist anymore. I mean, there's Acadia National Park, and I'm not even sure if that's related. Is that related? I don't know. I don't even know. Why was it? It could be named for, because Acadia means like Eden, some kind of Eden. I don't know. I talk about it in the book, but there are all kinds of definitions for Acadia or Arcadia. So maybe that's why. But yeah, Acadia doesn't even exist. You can Google it. And it's like, well, it used to be this country. So there's the people without a country anymore living in the country that they was their country, you know, really complicated um, to look at and think about where they came from. And my ancestors hid in the woods when all the ships came to take them away. They hid um, at least the arsenals, you know, there was a both sides of my family have this history. So the Arsenal family's um, kid and ended up repopulating parts of Prince Edward Island. And in the early, late 1800s and early 1900s, that's when they started to come to Maine to work in the industry. And that's the other thing that, you know, there's this, Acadians were like instrumental, Acadians and Franco-Americans were instrumental in the industrial revolution along the East Coast, you know, in the textile and the paper manufacturing factories. And it's a thing that not a lot of people know about. And I didn't know about it. If I didn't know, I have my family on both sides. And in fact, I trace my parents back to France and they're related back there. They came from this small little town that I went to. It's like a town of 200 people. My parents were from there, you know. So yeah, that's also in the book that your, your description of going back to France with your husband. Yeah. Him saying to you, you know, everyone in this town looks like you and they, 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 their gestures remind me of you. 
yeah, it was really weird. He was so freaked out by it. And I, I didn't notice. I was just like trying to teach, speak French in my broken, bad high school French. You know, like I, I'm not even going to repeat anything I said. It's terrible. In the book, I have to, I read the book for the audio copy. And I was like, oh no, I have to pronounce French words. But he was watching us and um, yeah. And you know, it's, I felt like it's easy to see things you want to see, but at the same time, there I think there are those connections. And there is um, Joan Vermette, who's from Portland or around the area. Sorry, she's not from Portland. Maybe she's on this call, but she was talking to me the other day about this. And I don't think I told you this, but she said, how did she say it? There's this, she says there's a historical reach, right? It's called historical reach. And I knew my great grandmother who was born in like 1886. I knew her a little bit, right? And she knew her great-grandmother. So there's almost 200 years of historical reach that we had to our ancestors. So that's also like a long river of connection, if it, you know, to overuse the metaphor. But it's true, you know, so to... I don't want to co-opt that say that I'm traumatized necessarily by my Acadian ancestors being being um, ejected from their country. But if I go back through that historical reach, I can almost touch my, that fourth or fifth great grandmother, whatever she is. And she was part of that exodus. Well, when you say the word trauma, it's true. I mean, it's been scientifically shown that, that trauma is passed down in DNA or in sort of biochemically. Yeah, that, that there was that study I, I, I should look at this more because it was years ago when I looked at that study, but that 1940 Dutch famine, they, they studied the genes of the people that were, uh, they found genes were silenced in some of those people and in their descendants, three generations on, the same genes were silenced, which the word silenced itself is like, oh my God, you know, it's just, yeah, that's crazy. Um, so they, you know, some people poo-poo that, but I mean... There's more and more things being done. It's very nascent research, but that, that trauma can be passed down makes a whole lot of sense to me. A lot of sense. A lot of sense. Like mm -hmm. other, like, like, why wouldn't it be passed down? You know? Right. Why, if it's in our blood, I mean, you pass down cancer or you pass down brown hair. Why right. wouldn't trauma be passed down? And another thing that I'm struck by um, that you write about in your book so um, profoundly and, and beautifully um, is the work ethic of the Acadians and how, and, and, and the clannishness and, and how, um, how tightly knit your community was in Rumford. And one of the things that strikes me about the mysteriousness, essentially, of Franco-Americans and Acadians is that, you know, they are clannish and they are, they do work really, really hard. And so it's not like a flashy culture, like the no. It's not, I feel like the Cajuns are flashy and sort of, you know, they, they, they established a really different sort of um, um, uh, image or something. Um, but the yeah. North and Maine are, are, are not about PR. You're not about like, you know, like um, your own mystique, um, but you genuinely have one because um, I'm writing a novel now uh, with- Tell me about it. <laughs> Uh, this is true. I mean, I'm so interested. And I'm also planning to write a novel set in a lumber camp. And I wrote a book about Maine food. So then you come along and I'm like, hello. <laughs> hello, we're going to be friends now. 
<laughs> I mean, really, I could talk to you all day, but I don't have all day. So I'll try to cut to the chase. Um, so I feel like I feel like the, the culture of the Acadians um, was easily exploited once. And, and you're talking about how you were the, the backbone of the Industrial Revolution. You're also the backbone of the working class. Right. Um, in Maine to this day um, because of this work ethic and this tendency to stick together and not stick your heads up. You say in your book that um, in, in you're all, it's a Catholic culture and it's very um, centered on, on, on groups, on being one of a group. And so you don't, so it's first of all really interesting that you left and that you became a great writer and then you came home and wrote about it. And yeah. so my question is really like five pronged. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know, um, just to get back to you inheriting all these traits um, from your ancestors, your own work ethic, and also the lens that you turned on your own community and mm -hmm. how that has felt. Um, and I guess that's my question or, or sort of open-ended. Yeah, just talk about it. Um, well. I, I, I definitely think since we're talking about inherited things, I, I'm not, I'm, and here it's like, I'm going to say it and I'm like, I don't want to brag. Like I have that natural inclination. <laughs> no, but I work really hard. I just, in fact, just wrote a essay about it that was in the New York Review books called my 86 jobs because I've had 86 jobs. Um, that, seemed, that seemed like nothing to me until John Freeman said, you should write about that's weird. You know, <laughs> I'm like, it is, you know, I don't know. Um, so, and it wasn't because I was like flaky or it's just, it was, a, it was a bad 50 years, let's just say, in, in being from the working class and um, which is kind of related to your question too. So I was like, well, I just, you just kind of have to do what you have to do. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter to me that I was like making pizza or waitressing or doing all those other stinky low wage jobs. It was just like, this is what I have to do. I didn't, I wasn't like too good for those jobs. You know, I don't think I ever got it. Well, no, I would say I didn't get exploited, but I probably, I did a few times. Yeah. Um, in certain ways. So inheriting that from my family, there's, there's no way I could, I mean, I, I had, first of all, I would have been killed by my father. No, just kidding. I mean, working hard was, working hard and, and keeping your nose clean and to the ground was just part of what I grew up as. And right. sometimes friends would say that I'm competitive and I, I am in sports, but I don't think I'm competitive in that way. I think it's more like I just, I really want to work hard and I want to see the results of it. Does that make sense? Like it, it comes out sometimes as being competitive, but I just, I want the result to be good. Like I want to work all day and see something. I want to make a meat pie and like have 20 of them sitting there or whatever, you know. How did it feel to, I mean, you worked on this book for 10 years, speaking of, of working really hard. I did. Um, well, and you researched it and worked, how many drafts did you write and, and um, sort of? Hundreds, I have no idea. I mean, did people just write, like, did people say, oh, I wrote three drafts? I don't know. I wrote it. I just revised it every day. So like thousands of drafts. Um, I don't, and that's, that's funny you ask that because I don't feel, I've, I'm like, it's not finished yet. You know? <laughs> like I still have to work. And in fact, I just started that project. I think I mentioned it um, the other night called that Cancer Yearbook. And it's on my website now. I just started collecting um, photographs and stories about people who have cancer or disease in my hometown that 
believe it might be connected to the paper mills pollution. Um, and I'm trying to just create a critical mass of that. So I, I always feel, I feel, I feel both responsible, like people started emailing me and this is part of that heritage too. I just feel really responsible for it. Like, I'm not just like, hey, thanks. Or I'm not, like, I'm not gonna ignore people that have a story like that. It's meaningful to them. And I've, I, I don't know, I can't ignore it. And I really wanna make it somehow be meaningful to them too. You know, that's part of it. I think it's a, an amazing project. I'm so moved at the very idea of it and the, the impact it will have to, to people looking at these actual faces and the story and the name. It's so much more... Naming it, yeah. Like, viscerally um, affecting much more than statistics or sort of, you know, a, a, you know a, a compiled list. It's sort of... Right, because that's what I would look through all these studies about cancer and... It was just so, and I, you know, or they'd talk about studies about the fish or the food. And I was like, what about the humans? Are we studying the humans to look, you know, I, there's not a lot of studies for the toxics I was looking at. There's not studies to say, oh, how much mercury is in your blood or dioxins or, so that's why I did that. I thought, huh, well, here's, here's where we can look. And some of the stories are just freaking heartbreaking. I don't know. I mean, there's not that many on there right now. People are still gathering and people are asking permission and it's kind of getting out there. I just started yesterday, so. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's very new. Um, wow. How we got off on that. Yeah, just saying, feeling responsible, feeling like I need to keep working, feeling like the story's not about me, it's about them. It's all part of the Acadian sort of like deference to. That's I, don't think it, I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, no, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's, a, it's, I mean, one of the most moving things in your book to me, I mean, I grew up sort of in a family that moved around every few years and I never had a place. I never really belonged anywhere. And um, so I, I felt this, this, I mean, just when you describe all the kids, how many kids, like how many different softball teams were there? <laughs> <laughs> I know we would, it's so, oh, that makes me feel sad for you. Um, yeah, we had neighborhoods of, I mean, my best friend was the youngest of 13. And then my other good friend, she was the third of 15 kids. So just their families alone, we could have had like four softball teams, you know, and my family was five. And there was another set of girls we hung out with. There were six. I mean, the neighborhood was filled with masses. I mean, there would be like an only child, you know, once in a while, I'd be like, what's wrong with them? It was so strange. I had the pleasure um, after our conversation after your book launch, you yeah. invited me to the after party, which was amazing. It was um, for just just to fill you all in on what it was. I got invited into the Acadian sort of neighborhood um, chat room on Zoom, and I got to sit and listen for a couple of hours to reminiscences and people talking about your book, and it was astonishing. I felt like I was I was like in the inner circle of you know, present day um, Rumford. And it wasn't even me talking, it was all them. We were, I was just sitting back and listening. And that's, that's a little bit about what's sad about the pandemic right now is that that's what I wanted to do is go um, through Maine and through these small towns and like really just listen to people's stories too. I really wanted to, but I have something in the works. And what? That was my next question. No, well, I just had an event with um, Jed Coffin. Oh yeah. And he's, he, well, I don't know if it was a grant or something, he's been invited to travel around all these small libraries 
in Maine and talk about his work. And uh, he's a he's a main author for those who don't know. And he and I are going to talk about maybe collaborating on that. Oh, how great! So we're oh, we're going to talk next week. That's great! Congratulations! Pretty excited. Um, and you know, Maine libraries are the best. I know. I'm going to do something in the Winthrop Library. Two things. They've already booked me for July 28th. So everybody, put that on your calendar next summer. <laughs> I love it. Hopefully it'll be in person by then. And then there's like a woman in Maine, which they need to reach out to you too, um, writers in Maine. But I want to ask you too, I go, we, you only briefly like skidded over your novel in progress about Acadians logging, whatever. Can you give us a little, give me a little teaser. I haven't, you've been asking, you've been so graciously asking me questions. I'm so nosy. I need to know. First of all, it's, I'm not being gracious. I'm nosy. And I'm... <laughs> I love your book, and, and I want everyone in the world to read it. So, um, but, but my book is, um, it's, I'm finishing, I guess it's a third draft, I don't know. Um, it's called The Change, and it's about a woman who grew up, um, who is of Acadian heritage. Um, her last name is Gautreaux, and, um, but, you know, her mother married a, a Scots-Irish, so her last name's actually Calloway, but she comes from the Gautreaux's. And um, part of it is set at her grandfather's camp, hunting and fishing camp up in the unincorporated woods. Um, but she became a client, climate scientist. So it's, it's um, she's a climate scientist who's going through menopause, whose mother just died, who comes home to Maine for the first time in 10 years. She's really left. And the novel gets into why. Um, and the, the book is about sort of um, from the time she gets on the plane to come home from DC to uh, what happens in Maine to, and the, I've just figured out the ending yesterday and I oh won't my God. tell you what it is, but it's no. um, the title to me um, says just about everything there is to say about the, it's about change on every single level. Um, oh, no, I cannot, what? Go ahead. This is so exciting. I can't wait to finish it. Um, thank you for asking and being excited about it. Um, it's it's a uh, it's sort of. I mean, I've been I've been also obsessed with environmental stuff. Another yeah. point of um, connection with your book that yeah. that really hit me um, in the solar plexus um, throughout the entire book. Everything you write has just sort of, you know, um, it's it's so urgent. Um, and 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 real and and present but i've always been obsessed sort of with climate change and what's going to happen and and it's it's pained and and it's given me this existential sort of yeah. um, fury that that we haven't addressed it as as collectively there hasn't been the will to address it because nothing has quote unquote happened yet um, well that's the thing right it's that's the problem with the problem with climate change is and and what i'm trying to do in this book too is that these are stories that happen over a long period of time they're attritional and they're not like spectacular like the wildfires are which i'm not happy that the wildfires happen but at least people are like okay that might be real now you know um it's really hard to tell those stories um, or to get those stories, not hard to tell, but hard to get people to see them as newsy, you know? Newsy and also personal. It's hard for- Personal, urgent too, right? Yeah, well, you know, everything, the weather's beautiful here today and I have plenty to eat and I just right. went swimming and, you know, it's sort of, but you know, Silent Spring came out in 1962. It That's did. the year I was born. 
So my entire life, there's been, I've been aware of an environmental crisis. And I remember there was in the 70s, I don't know if it was here in Maine, but um, in Arizona where I grew up, um, there was this real sort of push and awareness in schools. Don't pollute, don't waste water. Um, well, Arizona, but um, right. sort, of, sort of, we were aware and I feel- You like were aware of that too, yeah. I think it, there, there was a time in the 70s, like there was a window when- well, Sorry, sorry. I was gonna say that's when the EPA was established. Right. So I think that was in the news, so it filtered down to our little families and, and you know, I think that's probably why. Well, what was, it, what was it like for you in Rumford? I mean, with this toxicity all around you, um, there was Ed Muskie. Um, yeah, who wrote the Clean Air Act, um, yeah. Clean Water Act. Yep. Um, the only thing I remember was like, shut the lights off, and pick up your garbage, don't throw garbage on the road. Yeah. But there was nothing about, there was no larger discussion about the environment stuff, you know. I mean, there's still, it's funny, there's still people, uh, you know, discussing my book that are reading my book in, in my town who are like, oh, it's so much cleaner than it was. Yeah. But like, that's kind of a whataboutism. It's like, yeah. well, okay, it, maybe it is. You don't actually know that. And if you read my book, you would realize it's not really cleaner than it was. It's just as dirty. Yeah. Um, maybe even dirtier with them. Burning, dioxin. dioxin and with burning tires for oh, fuel. Right. Um, and dioxin, speaking of dioxin, if we all look out the window, you know, you know, what, you know, what creates unmitigated dioxin is wildfires. Um, especially it goes, there have been a few studies that I've looked at this week and you know, when buildings burn, of course, there's all these materials that are being burned that create dioxin, and it's not filtered with anything. At least our mill has like a things in the smokestacks, and we treat it. And then second is wood, and third is brush, but it all creates dioxin. So basically, the whole United States is under a cloud of dioxin. Yeah. No, that's like that's panic making. But I mean, it's a little bit true. I'm exaggerating, but it. But it's true. It's not just a little bit true. It's like actually true. And, and I don't want everybody to run out panic. I just, there's somebody here. I don't know if everybody can see this. I don't know. Just because I don't want to run this Maya Jackson. She says in my American literature class, it's to me privately, but I'm going to read it anyway, Maya. In my American literature class, we talk about identity and place. And I'm wondering if there's any literature from the Acadians I could bring to my class. Yes, me, mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, there's one right here. Hold on. <laughs> I'm going to write this down too because I want to know also. Oh, yeah, you got to read this. Okay, what? Halaji. Oh, yeah, okay. Who's it by? It's by um, Antune, Antonine Mallet, and she ran the, the pre Goncourt for it. Okay. Oops, can you see that? Halaji. Yeah, it's called The Return to Acadie. Okay. It's a really, I, it, it's, I briefly reference it in my book. Um, but I would not bring Anne of Green Gables to your class. Do not do that. Do not read Longfellow's poem, Longfellow's poem, um, even though I got married in his church in Portland, Maine. Yes, I did. You talk about both those, um, both those works in your book. I do. Oh, and yeah. I greatly enjoyed your sort of take on them. Take down, you mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of mythology built up around the... Yeah. I see Rachel's here. Rachel, you have some questions? Is she? We do. We have one question. I'm, I'm encouraging people to write um, in some more questions if you if you think of them. Um, this question is from Star. Uh, she says, "You mentioned that your family was tied to the water, similar to the indigenous people. Did these cultures blend?" 
Do you mean, um, if you're saying indigenous, did I say indigenous? They actually did at some point, um, the Micmacs in Canada um, did marry um, Acadians and did have children with them. And I have some of that DNA, which I've done my DNA. And it was my, my great grandmother who I was talking about, it was her, I think it was her great grandmother or grandmother that was, um, had part Micmac blood. But I mean, that doesn't mean anything necessarily to me. I don't have that historical reach per se, but yeah, they did. They, and the Micmacs actually really helped the Acadians when they first came to the country in 1601. They, they probably wouldn't have lived if it weren't for the, for the indigenous people because they helped them like. And unlike the English, they didn't um, kill them. That's right. They didn't, they did not kill them. They lived with them. They married them. They had sex with them. They had yeah. kids with them. <laughs> and they were friends and they all helped each other survive. Thank you. Yes. Kind of extraordinary. I mean, Acadia really was an Eden um, from what I know about it. Um, the descriptions I've read of, of Acadia. Wow, there's like a lot of people here. And you can just make comments. Somebody says, our adult son carries on the Christmas meat pie tradition for our family. He makes it, and ours, inclu ours includes pork, beef, real potato, and spices, yum. And of course, eaten with ketchup. Yes. Yum. <laughs> um, the other thing we used to make was, or, and I've made it here, and I really like it. It's just basically, I can't remember what they call it. I'm so bad. But it's um, basically chicken and dumplings. Mm. So stew, which is delicious. Um, but it's, this food is very like stick to your bones kind of food, you know, not a lot of like leafy green vegetables. Or <laughs> I mean, in Prince Edward Island, there's a lot of potatoes up there, you know, they grow potatoes. What else can, you know, potatoes and meat. So, you know, I don't know. It's funny. I'm not attracted necessarily to that kind of food. I don't know why. I mean, I am sometimes, but. Um, what, um, what did you make for dinner last night? Oh, so. My husband and I, he helped because if he's on here, he's going to say, I made it because I had an event last night, but it was at nine. So we both started. Anyway, made, um, there's this thing we make. We have, we're growing tomatoes. And we have so many cherry tomatoes and you can all make this. It's so easy. And you can even use cherry tomatoes from the store. Like put dozens of them in a bowl, mix it with olive oil and put whatever herb you have, not mint maybe, but like some kind of oregano, thyme, and we use rosemary. We had a lot of rosemary, dried rosemary even in a big bag. Rosemary and then sliced garlic, just tons of it, as much as you can stand, and salt and pepper. I used Urfa pepper, which is this black kind of chocolatey tasting pepper. Anyway, you roast that in the oven. You don't cut the cherry tomatoes, leave them whole because then they cook down without bursting and flattening and then like blackening, right? So you just cook them whole. And as soon as they get all dark and soft, take them out. And then what you have waiting for you is um, whole yogurt, organic, preferably thick Greek style yogurt. And we mix it with um, shred, um, minced or whatever, mushed garlic and salt. And then you put that on a platter and then you sprinkle the tomatoes over it. I cannot tell you how delicious it is. It sounds so good. So we had that and my husband made flatbread. It's just really easy. It's just flour and water and then he throws it on the grill. And then, so we just scooped that up. I did eat bread last night. I don't care. It was so good. And then with Maine grains, it's this flour we get from Maine. And then made a por this pork roast with um, onions, sherry, vinegar, Pedro Jimenez sherry, and raisins. So you just like sear the pork 
take it out, put the onions and the raisins in, let it cook down, let it cook down, put in the sherry bits, the sherry vinegar and the sherry, put the pork back in, cover it, cook it for like two hours. It's delicious. I'm like really hungry right now. I just went running before this, so I'm, I'm like. <laughs> what did you make for dinner last night? Um, oh, I made um, venison sausages because I. <gasps> what? Our tenant is a hunter and a butcher, and he makes amazing. So, so I had venison sausages, and then I got a beautiful green cabbage from our CSA. Oh. So, um, I made a, a braised cabbage with caraway seeds and apple cider vinegar and garlic and mustard. That's one of my favorite things to eat. I could eat an entire cabbage. And mashed potatoes. Oh. And so, speaking of potatoes, real mashed potatoes. Yeah. Um, so mashed potatoes, braised cabbage, and sausages. That's what we had. The, the juice going into the potatoes a little bit. Yeah. Yum. Good. And we put tons of mustard on the sausages and we said, we just moaned with pleasure as we ate. Which what do you put in your, I, ha I got a sausage making book and I have yet to tackle that just because I've been experimenting with like Korean food and some Japanese stuff. Mm. So I don't know. No, I'm not good. I can't say anything yet. Have but. you made some? I assume you have. No, no, no. Just very nascent, very nascent. I'm really into Spanish, Moorish food yeah. the most, Turkish food, um, Lebanese. I make a lot of that stuff. In fact, I think when I come to Maine <laughs> in the beginning of October to be on News Center, everybody, you know, <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to make, um, we're staying up at the Grey Havens Inn in Georgetown. I'm going to make a giant paella on the beach and you're all invited. <laughs> I wish I could invite you all over for lunch right now. We would cook you all some. I just made French toast with um, applesauce and maple syrup. And that <gasps> That's <was> delicious. <laughs> I'm actually sending everybody, I'm not really inviting you to the beach, but I am putting my email in the chat in case anybody has any questions or if you're, um, if you're from the River Valley, Rumford in Mexico, and you want to be involved in my cancer yearbook, I would love to hear from you on that too. If you're still Do you have a new book in mind that you're going to write or oh. idling? Not idling. Obviously, you're not idling. You have an event every single night. I have an event every single night. I have a lot of essays I'm working on up here. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I don't know yet. I'm thinking about a novel though. Oh, good. Will it be set in a lumber camp by any chance? No, I will not copy you. <laughs> it's not going to be anywhere in Maine. No. You can't have too many lumber camp novels, in my opinion. There aren't enough. It's true. I mean, Monica Wood wrote about my hometown, you know, and it was so funny. When her book came out, I just started writing about it, and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, she grew up down the street. I can't write about a book about it. This town, she did it, but ours was very different. different. I know you guys are both going to be in conversation at the Down East Literary Festival. Yes. I can't wait to hear you. Yeah, that'll be fun. We'll have a lot to talk about, I'm sure. We will. Does anybody else have any questions, Rachel? Um, yeah, we have, we have four more minutes, um, okay. but... I, and I'll just start to say goodbye. And if anything pops up, I'll, I'll ask okay. you. But I just wanted to thank you both so much for this delicious and interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you, and um, it's just been a pleasure. And I know we have such a good group and I, I'm sure everyone really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you so much. And I, um, Carrie, what is the date of your WCSH talk? Just so people can get it in their calendar. Oh, supposedly October 5th, unless it rains because it's gonna be out. We have to do it outside because of- Oh, COVID. right. Yeah.
So October 5th, I'm going to be doing that. Okay. Well, we'll all, um, we'll all keep an eye out for it. And those of you who yeah. haven't bought and read this book, do so. Sorry, Rachel, I, I just had to interrupt. <laughs> That's good, Kate. And um, for everyone that hasn't bought it, there are links to Longfellow uh, and print in the chat. Uh, you can even, if you don't get the link, you can just pick up the phone and call them both. They're really user-friendly and um, just pick it up on curbside pickup. So yes, help, Kate, help, help Milltown be, it, last week it was a bestseller in Maine, number one, <laughs> nonfiction. Yeah, in Maine, of course. I think independent in New England too was like number 12. So keep that up, everybody. Not for me, but for the people that the book's about, I think. Yeah. Um, really, I just feel very strongly about that. So thank you both. I just want to keep going, but I'm going to go eat now. I can't yeah. <laughs> We're all hungry. <laughs> all right. I guess with that, we'll say goodbye. Thanks again, and see you all soon. Kate, see Bye. you in email. Bye, Carrie. Bye, Rachel. Bye. Bye. Thank you guys so much for your time. Bye. Sad, sad to leave.